0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Joel Beakey called Early Puritans on the Family, from the series of the same name. Check out the rest of the series and more from Dr. Joel Beakey now on Canon Plus.
1: Okay. I'm Joel Beakey from Puritan Reform Seminary. Great to be here. I'm just going to read you a paper for about uh, 20 minutes. Hopefully we'll have uh, 10 minutes Q&A or five minutes Q&A. Uh, Puritans and the Family, recent publications. <clears throat> In many ways, the, Re- the Reformation of the 16th century was the breaking of divine light through clouds of darkness that had gathered over the church for centuries. Reformers poured out their lives like oil into a lamp to shine the light of Holy Scripture across Christian belief and practice. A necessity, they focused their major writings upon the great doctrines of the gospel, summarized by the soul of Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone. When the Puritans arose in the latter half of the 16th century, They basked in this light and labored to bring it into practical application for all of human life and society. And one area in which they excelled was the Christian family, so that their writings on marriage and parenting continue to be republished today. A number of classic Puritan writings on marriage and family were reprinted in the last century, including facsimile reprints of William Waitley's two small books on marriage and William Ames's book on conscience, which contains several chapters, on household life. Baxter's massive tome on Puritan ethics and spirituality, a Christian directory, uh, contains many directions as well for family life. The republication of the works of Swinok brought forth the valuable Christian man's calling with sections on conduct in the home. Further, the reprint of the six volumes of Puritan sermons preached at Cripplegate included sermons by Richard Adams on the duties of parents and children Doolittle on family prayer, and Richard Steele on the duties of husbands and wives. Though we're presently only 15 years into the 21st century, 20 more Puritan works relevant to this topic have appeared in print in these last 15 years. Let me introduce them to you then, and I'll categorize them for the sake of convenience. First, Puritan Bible commentaries. We must not pass by the commentaries by Puritans who expounded Scripture passages that set forth God's will for the family. Today, people who talk about the Puritans tend to focus on their theological and practical treatises, but the Puritans produce major commentaries on Scripture. Think of Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry. When we think of extended biblical treatments of family life, our minds move quickly to Paul's epistles, the Ephesians and the Colossians. Three Puritan commentaries in those epistles have been reprinted in the 21st century. Paul Bain succeeded Perkins as the preacher of St. Andrews. Though not as well known as Perkins, Ames considered Bain to have a double portion of the spirit of his Elijah-like predecessor. Bain's commentary on Ephesians gives 27 large pages to the apostles' instructions to wives, husbands, children, and parents. His comments are sometimes couched in quaint Elizabethan language, but they're full of doctrinal and practical observations. For example, Bain says that the husband who does not love his wife tenderly, despite the fact that she's one flesh with him, is like a man who eats his own liver or becomes his own hangman. Nicholas Byfield died in his early 40s after terrible suffering from kidney stones. He published a number of prize books, including a commentary on Colossians, reprinted in 2001. John Davenant, represented the Church of England at the Synod of Dort, also wrote a commentary in Colossians, a reprinted in Geneva Commentary Series. It's rich in scholarship, devotes 40 pages to family duties. For example, Davenant warns that husbands must not treat their wives like maids or servants, but as friends and fellow rulers over the family. Quote, the wife is to be subject to her husband and directed by him, but as a companion, not a slave, and he specifically forbids husbands <laughs> to physically strike their wives. That's a common, common refrain in Puritan books on marriage. Though we may not think of the Old Testament prophets as sources of teaching about the family, I would mention the commentary by Richard Stock on Malachi, also reprinted by Tentmaker, which contains twenty pages of exposition on the prophet's rebuke of the sins of husbands against their wives. I would encourage you to give attention to Puritan commentaries on Scripture. Such expositions offer fertile fields for study in early Reformed exegesis, hermeneutics, theology, Christian experience, and ethics. And in their own time, these commentaries were not the specialized domain of scholars and preachers, but influenced all of society from family life to politics and legislation. Second category are Puritan books with sections on the family. I'd like to highlight five of them here, reprinted in the 21st century. Puritans, you know, often use the Ramist method of dividing each topic into subtopics, analyzed into further divisions and subpoints. As a result, even a single chapter or sermon often contains a remarkably detailed exposition of its subject. We find such sections on marriage and parenting in books by two Scots, two ministers of the Church of England, and one English separatist, all recently reprinted. James Durham was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor known for his humility and scholarship. Died at age 35, but produced an enormous amount of edifying theological writing. Probably the most popular is practical exposition of the Ten Commandments. In the midst of discussing worship under the Fourth Commandment, Durham's treatment of family worship extends to 16 pages in length. He directs families to gather in the home to pray, read, sing psalms, discuss sermons, and of spiritual conversations. In such times, God sweetly draws near and reveals himself, and the knowledge of God is propagated and increased. Although the ministry of Thomas Halliburton followed upon what many scholars would consider to be the end of the Puritan era, he was thoroughly imbued with the spirit of Puritanism. So I include him here. Last years of his life, he was a professor uh, in Scotland. He was a uh, greatly admired Samuel Rutherford, and uh, he requested, by the way, that when he died, he'd be buried as close as possible to Rutherford, because Rutherford loved Christ so much, and Halliburton Burton wanted to see the expression on his face when he saw Christ uh, coming. And um, if you go to St. Andrew's Cemetery today, Rutherford has just an amazing stone with amazing poem on it about him, and Halliburton's Burton's gravestone is right next to him. In fact, the bottom is about this far apart. And the two gravestones are leaning toward each other. In the top, they're about that far apart. So he got his wish. Uh, Rutherford, or Halliburton, rather, have had his entire works reprinted by the James Begg Society, four volumes. And in his book, The Great Concern of Salvation, which is a masterpiece, he ends with 35 pages on family religion. He said that making your home into a place of godliness and worship is a great evangelistic strategy. It is the way For thee to win souls, he writes. 21st century also saw the reprinting of an early English Puritan known as the silver-tongued Chrysostom preacher named Henry Smith. Among the collected sermons of Smith is a preparative to marriage, 35-page exposition of biblical teaching on matrimony that is full of wisdom and love. He said that for a husband, his wife is, quote, like a little Zoar, a city of refuge to fly to in all his troubles. Rebuking men inclined to be physically abusive to their wives, he asked, does a king trample his crown? Lewis Stuckley, minister in the Church of England until ejected by the government on St. Bartholomew's Day uh, in 1662, wrote a book called Gospel Glass, recently reprinted. Uh, And that's an aid to self-examination with regard to a wide variety of sins. He devotes 14 pages, searching pages, on family relationships. For example, Stuckley asks wives if they gossip, gossip about their husband's flaws more than they publicly praise their graces. And lastly, in this category, I note the republication by Sprinkle of the works of the English separatist John Robinson revered pastor of the Pilgrims in the Netherlands before they went to the New World on the Mayflower. His essays contain two short pieces on marriage and child-rearing. For scholars desiring to locate chapters in Puritan books on a particular subject, I'd like to commend the use of our electronic library catalog at PRTS. Our librarians have keyed in not only the titles of each book, but also the chapter headings which makes for unusually fruitful keyword searches. Um, You may not know, but we have a Puritan Research Center, the 2,000 books written by the Puritans, and then another 2,000 books written on the Puritans. You're welcome to, to visit and use the library anytime. Now, Puritan booklets, another section. Puritan booklets pertinent to family life. These are helpful, short booklets, sometimes just sermons. Um, published by Solidio Gloria, which is now an imprint of Reformation Heritage Books, which, um, I head up. And, um, we are, I suppose, now the, the world's, uh, largest reprinter of, of Puritan titles. So we try to do six to twelve Puritan titles every, every year. Arthur Hilderzam though largely forgotten today, was a powerful preacher often persecuted for his refusal to conform to the demands of church and state. His booklet, Dealing with Sin in Our Children, is an excerpt from a massive folio volume containing 152 sermons on Psalm 51. Given David's statement, he was conceived in his mother's womb in a state of sin. Parents, Hilda should recognize that they've passed their own original sin along to their children and strive to lead their children to salvation by the use of their authority, instruction, examples, arrangements for schooling, work, and marriage, and most of all, prayer. Edward Lawrence, the author of Parents' Concerns for Unsaved Children, based on Proverbs 17.25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him wrote instructions for parents and appealed to wayward children with his heart heavy with grief for two of his own children who continued to live in rebellious folly. By the way, I need to say that this little booklet has been a tonic for a number of Christian parents around the world who've had wayward children. they uh, have gotten really heartfelt response from parents who've been helped by this. Last two booklets both come from the pen of Cotton Mather. A family well-ordered sets forth the responsibility of parents to raise their children in God's ways and the responsibility of children to honor their parents. He taught parents to pray, Lord, give unto my child a new heart, a clean heart, a soft heart, a heart after thy own heart. His other booklet, is Help for Distressed Parents, actually cites the book by Lawrence I just mentioned, and it offers comfort to the parents of wayward children as well, it calls them to self-examination, and directs them to keep talking to their children about Christ and not give up because of God's faithful covenant mercies. Now then, there are also entire books by the Puritans that address Christian marriage or parenting. Seven of them, there's about 55 by the way that the Puritans wrote throughout those that century and a half, but seven of them have been reprinted for the 21st century. By far the most famous of all the 55 is William Gouges' Domestical Duties, the premier Puritan treatise on the subject. If you were a Puritan pastor in the 17th century and you were going to officiate at a couple's wedding, you want to give them a gift, a 90% chance you buy them William Googe's 800-page Domestical Duties and, and give that to them as a wonderful gift. Uh, the whole thing is reprinted by uh, Ed Fox. Puritan reprints um, in in 500 pages. The typeface, however, is very small. It's very difficult to read. Scott Brown and I then took it, and we have edited it thoroughly uh, without changing the meaning. Uh, There's a few quaint parts that we we did drop out because they just have no application to today, and the whole section of slave and master at the end we dropped out. But we reprinted it in three volumes that are accessible to people today. It's called Building a Godly Home. And we titled the three volumes, A Holy Vision for Family Life, which deals with a walkthrough of Ephesians 5, exegetical walkthrough, and then A Holy Vision for a Happy Marriage, which really deals with husband-wife relationship in detail, and third volume, A Holy Vision for Raising Children. While remaining true to Guja's words, this modernized version aims to make him more accessible to readers. Um, the first part while addressing the responsibilities of each member of the household, Guj also presents a beautiful exposition of the redeeming work of Christ for his church. He exalts in that the person of Christ, God-man, was given up. I gather that the price of our redemption is of infinite value. Neither Christ nor God Himself could give anything greater. Heaven and earth and all things in them are not of similar worth. This gives hope to sinners. What place can be left for despair to those that know and believe the worth? Of this ransom. Second part, which is volume two now, is an exhaustive treatment of the duties of husbands and wives. Good stresses that each spouse must be concerned performing his or her own duties, regardless of whether one spouse is performing his or her own duties. And I just want to say, common here, this is one of the most common themes in all of Puritan literature, and one of the most helpful. And Gouge makes it the strongest of all. He has these statements where he talks to the husband, to the wife, something like this. He says, "Uh, Wife, you may have the most permissive, uh, or most wicked rather, capricious husband who's like a son of Belial and he's ugly and he's rude and he's crude and he's just abominable and there's so much about him you don't like, but that's none of your business. You are still to treat him with respect and submission and love as if he were the most handsome, loving prince in all the world. Then he turns around and says to the man, you may have the most nagging, persnickety, homely, defigured wife in all the world, but you are to treat her like she's your only queen who is designed peculiarly for you. And then he says this, it is no business of yours whatsoever the way your wife is treating you, are no business of you whatsoever the way the husband is treating you. Because you each have to mind your own business and do your own duties, according to Ephesians 5. And when marriages get in trouble is when they start thinking about how the partner is treating them rather than how they're treating the partner. And that's a pretty revolutionary idea for today. But I would suggest to you that it may be that Puritans are light years ahead of us here in this way of thinking. Because I've been pastoring people for 40 years now, and I have never, ever, ever had to pastor a single couple out of hundreds of couples I've pastored in my lifetime, where both people were minding their own business and doing their own duties. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loves the church, no matter how their wives treat them. Wives must respect, show submission to their husbands, no matter how their husbands treat them. For each virtue required by God Gouge sets forth the contrary vice to be avoided. Regarding adultery, for example, though ancient customs and medieval traditions tended to make a woman's adultery worse crime than a man's, Guj resolutely insisted that God's word condemns adultery equally in either case. His emphasis is always on love. A loving, mutual affection must pass between husband and wife, or else no duty will be well performed. Then volume three, Mutual responsibilities of parents and children examines cases of conscience regarding how a child should honor his parents, even if he disagrees with them. As with marriage, he insisted that the fountain of all right behavior between parents and children is love. He warned parents against extremes in correcting their children. On the one hand, they should not pamper them and fail to correct their sins so that they run ahead into wickedness. On the other hand, they must not correct them with excessive severity so that their minds are dulled and their hearts hardened. What is excessive correction? Goode says it is correction for no fault, correction administered in anger and fury, correction that treats young and tender children as if they were older and extremely obstinate, correction for every little thing done wrong, a correction that physically injures the child. Another recent reprint worthy of our attention is Richard Baxter, The Godly Home, published by Crossway beginning of this paper, I mentioned Baxter's classic Christian directory. This reprint is a 200-page excerpt from the larger work. Though Baxter deviated from the orthodox Reformed view of the atonement and justification by faith, his practical writings have been greatly treasured through the centuries. His book is a compilation of directions to husbands, wives, parents, and children, outlining their duties to one another and indicating what their motives should be in doing them. So he deals a lot with shepherding the heart. One notable feature of this book is a chapter of 40 pages containing 20 arguments why families should practice regular family worship or devotions together in their homes. Baxter argued that God created the family, owns it as his institution, rules over it, and therefore each family owes him its worship. God revealed his will that the family be dedicated to his worship by his command to Abraham to circumcise his household, by institu- tooting the Passover as a sacred meal in each household, by his promise that when the Spirit is poured out, every family apart will mourn the death of Christ, and by the salvation of entire households in the book of Acts. He also points out that the Bible commands heads of households to teach God's word to those under their authority and care and commends those that do so. Though we may not agree with Baxter on all points, the wisdom and balance of his 340-year-old directions are amazing. For example, he said that parents must not treat young children as either equals or servants, but as their dearly loved children. Children are thinkers. And if they only fear your anger, then fear will make them liars as often as a lie seems necessary to their escape. However, if they see that you, quote, dearly love them and that all your commands, restraints and corrections are for their good, then they will obey you more willingly, even in your absence. Another example of Baxter's wisdom is his instructions for sports and recreations. He commends activity for children that serve their health and cheerfulness, particularly stating that whatever exercises their body is best. However, he warns against activities that hinder their schoolwork and chores or tempt them to greed and gambling. Daniel Rogers wrote a treatise based on Hebrews 13.4, Matrimonial Honor, recently re typeset, and republished. Rogers was the son of the more famous Richard Rogers, who wrote uh, the classic uh, book on cases of conscience called Seven Treatises and a very large commentary on judges. We hope to publish Seven Treatises uh, in a few years, by the way. We've just got it typed now. Like Gooch and Baxter, the younger Rogers expounds the mutual duties of spouses, the specific duties of husbands and of wives. He concludes with sobering warnings of God's judgment against fornicators and adulterers and an exhortation to sexual purity. To those feeling the guilt of their sexual sins, Rogers urged earnest faith in Christ and broken-hearted repentance toward God. He writes, will God judge adulterers, stoop, bow down then at his bar. He can save or destroy. Here is a judge that can damn you to hell forever. Go on, be earnest with God to give you a glimpse of hope in the Lord Jesus, who has made all sin and has satisfied the wrath of this judge, that he might say, deliver him. I have accepted a ransom and so on. Uh, Rogers also has this interesting section in which he talks about on the day of judgment, if you haven't raised your children in the fear of God, how terrible it will be for children to stand on the wrong side of Christ and have to say, my parents professed the name of Christ, but never talked to us daily, never did family worship with us. And woe be to them that we are now on the wrong side of Christ. It's, It's profoundly arresting. The same spiritual emphasis appears in another smaller book, um, By an author just named D.B., all we know is it's a Puritan, an antidote against discord between man and wife. It diagnoses the root problem of marital conflicts as the inward corruption of original sin, especially inordinate self-love and pride. The author proceeds to describe in very practical terms how the fallen heart of man rages with sinful anger. His solution was not a mere list of how-tos, however, but the call to put sin to death by the grace of the gospel. And he said, you cannot put sin to death unless you are engrafted into Christ by faith. He goes on and gives a dozen directions about how to overcome sinful anger. But all of that must be rooted in Christ. Matthew Henry, best known for his commentary on the Bible, wrote four treatises, recently republished uh, under the title Family Religion. The first three, A Church in the House, the Catechizing of Youth, and Christ's Favor to Little Children are all very helpful. The last of these, Henry at one point directly addresses children saying, quote, that the Lord Jesus Christ has a tender concern and affection for you and that he has blessings in store for you if you apply yourselves to him according to your capacity. Has he thus loved you and will you not love him? The entire second half of the book is a treatise on baptism where Henry shows himself true to his reformed covenantal tradition. George Hammond, an English Presbyterian minister and school teacher wrote a book in answer to the question, upon what scripture grounds and reasons may family worship be established and enforced? We've republished that as the case for family worship. Hammond drew upon the examples of Abraham, Job, Joshua, the Lord Jesus, and Cornelius to argue that family worship is an important preparation for public worship on the Lord's day. And then I'm just going to slip over into the Dutch further reformation of parallel movement because there's a great book that's been retranslated and uh, published by Jacobus Kuhlman called *The Duties of Parents*. It contains 282 concisely stated principles about rearing children, many of which cannot be found in any other books. One striking aspect of Kuhlman's work is sensitivity to child development, adjusting expectations according to the child's age. Conclusion. Puritan writings in the family arose out of the conviction that God's word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Recent reprints of these books demonstrate that the Puritans were indeed burning and shining lights, and their treatises still shine for us today. There's no denying that that their language is quaint. Four or five centuries makes for many changes, but there's also no denying that the Puritans wrote as people of their own culture, sometimes revealing the blind spots of British and European minds in the 16th and 17th centuries. However, the Puritan expositions and treatises on family life are rich with biblical and practical insights, some of which are seldom found in more modern books. I hope this brief survey whets your appetite to take up and read. <clears throat> I don't think time is done. Isn't it? <laughs> You're perfect. But we're going to have you and I in about seven
0: minutes. Okay. Okay. Let's okay, go. Yeah. I've got a handout coming out, uh, I'm gonna take uh, about seven or eight minutes to uh, give you some bibliographical resources uh, on the front end of our period, and then uh, Dr. Beaky and I will be available for questions before we hear Dr. Manning. Uh This is a short uh, abstract to orient you toward uh, a growing field uh, of study on the Reformation of the family. Uh, no, no, on, I could just, I'll put yeah. these in the back these, these are whole papers in the back but I, I'll say uh, now um, there was there was a change there was a shift, a sociological shift at the time of the Reformation uh, which I think in part, and this is where I wanted Joel to present his, his uh, research uh, <coughs> fueled nearly a century and a half of uh, literary development literature that led to the, the Puritan Halcyon days uh, of Focus on marriage and the home. It was not always so. Stephen Osmond uh, has said that the Reformation's largest institutional change <clears throat> brought forth was in the realm of marriage. And there's there's a growth in, in field we want you to be slightly aware of as, as scholars from 1995 on. Uh, the brief handout I've given you and the paper in the back and uh, Dr. Beeky's papers will be back there too if you came in late. Uh, orient you towards for some of the literature, I date this, and, and I'll allow Scott to have a, a rebuttal if he wishes in his time, but I, I really date this uh, beginning of a new, a new discipline to study in 1995 with the publication of Robert Kingman's work uh, on adul- adultery and divorce in Calvin's Geneva. Uh, Prior to that, there were a few studies. Uh, I've listed those in the bibliograph of the Reformation. Prior to that, there were a few studies. John L. Thompson's uh, 1992 work was a a groundbreaking uh, one. Uh, There are a number of others, uh, Reformation scholars you're familiar with. Janine Olson uh, has published in this field, and also Jeffrey Watt, Hans Schilling, and uh, our second speaker, Dr. Scott Manich, among others. But the shifts that, that I want to summarize to you in this area will will set up uh, some appreciation for what transpired between the time of, of Calvin and the Puritans. There were four uh, sociological shifts that we can identify. First, uh, there was a shift away from viewing marriage as primarily a genealogical or civil ordinance. Uh, weddings became, in some ways, ecclesial matters uh, following the Reformation. Secondly, Protestant clergy. Fully embraced the married life and the previous monopoly on the ministerial market uh, was broken once and for all. Uh, and so- several scholars and historians have uh, surmised that the Protestant teaching on the married clergy was one of the largest contributions. In fact, Roland Bankton, uh says that the home. Was the only sphere in which Lutheranism achieved any revolution <coughs> in attitude. So it sounds like a controversial statement, but I, I think he, he makes uh, the point that there was a revolution in the attitude of the, of the homes as uh, ministers were married. Thirdly, as the sociological shift, the ethics of family life became constant Most, I mean, in those communions. There is a rise of the state of tracts, devotion tracts, and teachings as pastors would begin to preach, and then they were fathers as well. Which heretofore had not known. And the fourth and final change was that the early Protestant treaties and the ethics of divorce clarified the Reformation's embrace marriage. Now, we could debate in this group, probably have a fruitful time, and maybe in the QA you'll like to, uh, as to how much of this teaching uh, was in continuity uh, with the Middle Ages and with canon law. But nonetheless, uh, a man who's unable to be with us today, <coughs> Dr. Michael Parsons has contributed to a wonderful work that I want to commend to you. Uh, his 1996 uh, dissertation uh, was, was done, and then uh, Mike's, uh, uh, Mike's book on, on Lutheran Calvin on marriage was republished in 2005. Uh, it's a fine contribution uh, to this whole field, so uh, I think if you're going to study marriage and family ethics, you want to be aware of some of these resources. John Whitty uh, is uh, an Atlanta resident, and I hope to have John here for on sabbatical uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, but John Whitty and Robert Keenan co-published a very significant work in 2005 uh, entitled Sex, Marriage, and Family in John Calvin's Geneva, and that first volume was a courtship, engagement, and marriage, and speaking with John, we're eagerly awaiting volume two, and he says it's not close. <laughs> and that's probably an understatement um, but in that work by Whitty and Kingman uh, they selected three key years in their interpretation in Calvin's Geneva the years 1546, 1552, and 1557 uh, and researched the council records and uh, grew from that one of their, uh, one of their conclusions uh, is to state the number of issues that were raised with Genevan consistories, family issues. And according to William Kingdon's uh, 2005 work, over half of the cases raised in church discipline matters in each of those years were involved in what they would characterize as sexual or family issues. This shows you the activity uh, of the Genevan consistory. Uh, I think you want to be aware of the work of Thomas Lambert, even uh, though know, it might not seem directly. Uh, related to this theme, uh, Lambert's uh, dissertation on preaching, praying, and policy the reform in 16th century Geneva is, is highly significant. John Thompson's work, John Callum and the Daughters of Sarah, uh, by Lou Gros in 1992, uh, is a staple for the field, uh, and a number of others. So uh, just, to, just to make this, this simple point, and there's, there's more of this than we'll discuss later, Uh, But before Dr. Beakey goes, uh, I wanted to at least orient you to the first part of the bibliographical studies which is the end of our period. And I'll ask Joel to come up here if you have any questions uh, for him or comments. I'm sure he'd be glad to entertain that. Sure. Do I go back there? Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, This may be an overgeneralization, but it seems that... um, In English Puritanism, in the English-speaking world, with such an emphasis on family worship and family, it sort of petered out. Where in the Dutch world, it seems to have continued longer. Is there are there reasons for that? Is that persecution in England with regard to Puritanism?
1: Yeah, I think the um, the Dutch world developed a stronger covenantal sense of tradition. And uh, that led to stronger convictions about Christian schools. Uh, that had a profound impact in, in Dutch culture, in the Dutch ecclesiastical world, but also in the Dutch family. And so what you'll find, even today, if you, if you go speak in a typical church in the UK, I just got back in the UK last night, um, you'll find 75% of the people in the congregation have, have white or gray hair, and you'll find another fifteen percent have brown or black hair, but they're not children. And you'll find five percent of the congregation. And that's to be children. You go to the Netherlands, even though many churches are liberal, but you go preach in a conservative evangelical church and those, sixty percent of the congregation will be children. Why is that? Well, it has a lot to do with the daily family worship in the home, which they continued more than the English and Scottish did. You know, and it has to do a lot with Christian education and that strong covenantal emphasis.
0: Excuse me. Yes? some books and articles with these books and books with these subjects. Yeah, I oh, okay. In terms of the covenantal emphasis?
1: <coughs> yeah. Um, Could you repeat the question? Books that deal with the covenantal tradition in the Dutch. The best book is by Jonathan Gerstner, Jr. Um uh, Jr. Jonathan Gerstner. It's called the... Uh, um, oh, yes. The Thousand Generation Covenant. The Thousand Generation Covenant. Half the book deals with South Africa, but the other half deals with the Netherlands, and it shows the strong covenantal tradition, particularly the Dutch further reformation And how it out of that. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: enjoyed this episode be sure to check out the full series early puritans on the family and more from dr beaky now available on canon plus